Welcome to Something Ventured, Something Gained, Tales from an AEP. I'm your host, Catherine, a teacher at an AEP. If you're unfamiliar with AEPs, stick around. You might learn something interesting. If you work at an AEP, stick around. You might be able to relate or learn something to take back to your campus. This podcast is designed for staff, students, parents, guardians, and the general public. Episode 3, SEL. Huh, what is it good for? Absolutely everything. Quick note, if this is your first time joining us, I highly encourage you to check out Episode 1 first. It will give you a broad introduction to our campus and review some terminology with which you may be unfamiliar. And then please join us back here or any other episode of your choosing. I do hope you enjoy this episode, whether you've listened to the first one or not. What is it? I am writing this episode as I wait for our school board meeting to start. I'm watching a live stream on YouTube. During tonight's board meeting, our campus will be presenting its two students of the month to the board. One of the students is a shining example of why our alternative school works so well and how we use SEL to accomplish our mission and vision. What concerns me is the lack of understanding surrounding SEL to the point where it has become some kind of boogeyman. So let's start with what it is. SEL, or social-emotional learning, is a set of practices and principles that help people learn to regulate their emotions and, by extension, their reactions to those emotions. The official definition provided by CASEL, the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning, is as follows. The process through which children and adults acquire and effectively apply the knowledge, attitudes, and skills necessary to understand and manage emotions, set and achieve positive goals, feel and show empathy for others, establish and maintain positive relationships, and make responsible decisions. In our setting, we use it as a way to help students become more aware of their behaviors and emotional responses, especially when communicating with others, so that they can be more effective communicators when they leave our building, either for the day or for the rest of their lives upon graduation. Not so scary, right? SEL is made up of five core competencies self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, relationship skills, and responsible decision-making. We as a campus strive to provide opportunities for our students and the adults in the building to grow in these competencies. Because let's face it, nobody is perfect. I have actually learned a lot about myself and managing my own emotions as I prepare activities and discussions for my advisory class. There are skills within these competencies that I struggle with in my own life, and I own up to those during our discussions. I offer anecdotes about times I reacted poorly to a situation and it made things worse. And I give real-world examples of how my struggles impact my life and why I'm trying to improve my self-regulation, 
even as an adult. So let's dive in and look at each competency individually. I will go over the skills and knowledge that we aim for the students to learn and how I present this information to my advisory. Self-awareness. This is the big bad wolf in the world of SEL because success in the other competencies is almost always contingent on how well we do with this one. If we can't even identify our feelings and or our triggers for those feelings, we can't even begin to change our behaviors towards ourselves and others. Kaysel defines self-awareness as the ability to accurately recognize one's own emotions, thoughts, and values and how they influence behavior. The ability to accurately assess one's strengths and limitations with a well-grounded sense of confidence, optimism, and quote-unquote growth mindset. And within this competency, there are some key skills listed in student-friendly language that I use to guide my practices. Those skills are identifying emotions, accurate self-perception, recognizing strengths, self-confidence, and self-efficacy. Putting the skills in student-friendly language is important because it gives me a nearly universal vocabulary when fostering discussions, providing journal prompts, or offering advice. Do I sometimes have to define efficacy? Sure, it is still school after all. But for the most part, my students understand what I'm getting at when I talk about these things. So how do I go about providing learning in this competency? Journaling and goal setting are the two easiest ways. I mentioned in episode one that I try to follow a schedule every week with my advisory. So on Wednesdays, I like to provide a journal prompt. It is set up as a Google Doc in Canvas, and the prompt is usually a question wherein the answers will provide some insight to them as whole people. The prompt is also followed by some sentence stems. This is just good teacher practice since it helps the students form their thoughts into complete sentences, especially our English language learners. Here's an example from a prompt I did earlier in the year. What have you done in the last week that you are proud of? And the sentence stems were, I am proud of blank because blank. And in the past week, I have blank, which makes me proud because blank. And here are a few of the responses. I am proud of starting doing my work because I'm trying to prove people wrong. In the past week, I have been sore and feeling really tired, but I still come to school, which makes me proud because I at least put in the effort to show up. This from a pregnant student. The prompt allows students to identify their emotions, recognize their strengths, and build self-confidence. Sometimes I present a hypothetical scenario in a journal prompt or class discussion. One example that I have done involves a potential work situation. I presented to the students a scenario where an employee was being yelled at by their boss for doing something incorrectly. I ask the students if they have ever been in a situation where they felt disrespected by the way someone spoke to them. If they have, what was the situation? 
I then ask if they think the character in the video was more upset by the words or the tone of voice and why. I presented the video and questions on Canvas to solicit private feedback. That way the students would feel comfortable sharing. I then used their responses to guide a conversation about appropriate responses to perceived disrespect. And I focused on the word perceived because I wanted to make sure we paid more attention to our personal feelings and emotions as opposed to the specific details of the argument. This helped me steer them toward identifying emotions, accurate self-perception, and self-efficacy. The real beauty of this scenario is how well it tapped into the other competencies because our abilities in the three aforementioned skill levels play a big role in how we improve our skills in the others. Self-management. I hope it is self-evident why self-awareness is the preferred first step with self-management following closely behind. You know, you say the word self enough times and it stops sounding like a word. But you can't manage what you aren't aware of. So our goal is to get our students in touch with how they are feeling, good and bad, so that they can learn to respond appropriately. Self-management or emotional regulation doesn't mean that you always feel happy. What it means is that when you find yourself in a state of dysregulation, you reach into your toolbox and work to bring yourself back into a state of regulation. Sometimes that means actually sitting with the negative feelings for a while to truly understand what the primary underlying emotion is and what triggered it. Through self-management practice, our students learn to identify what they are feeling before it spirals out of control and respond in ways that don't inflict harm or trauma on themselves and others. How many times have you said or done something you wished you could take back, but you couldn't? I've been there, and so have so many of our students. I won't beat a dead horse, but a lot of our students come from a background of issues or trauma in some way, shape, or form. They don't end up in an alternative campus for no reason. Some of the difficulties are fairly low level, but more often than not, they lack a support system and set of tools to help them cope with life's most challenging parts. But let me be perfectly clear about one thing. Those are experiences they have had. It is not who they are. And I am blessed to work at a campus designed to treat all students as whole people with the potential to design a future that isn't marred by the past. Casel defines self-management as the ability to successfully regulate one's emotions, thoughts, and behaviors in different situations, effectively managing stress, controlling impulses, and motivating oneself. The ability to set and work toward personal and academic goals. The student-friendly worded skills are impulse control, stress management, self-discipline, self-motivation, goal setting, and organizational skills. So basically, you felt the feeling, now what do you do about it? And what is a goal that you can set for yourself moving forward? 
One of my colleagues is basically a pro at this. As much as I love contributing my own anecdotes and practices, I find it necessary to defer to the expert here. This teacher has a wonderful system in place for daily goal setting that helps to keep her students on track. Each period they come in and set a goal for that period on a sticky note. The goal is based on a pacing guide for the course that indicates how long each assignment should take. A goal for the 45 minute class period might look something like complete the 2.1 ed puzzle and 2.2 chart. She then talks to each student to discuss if it is a reasonable goal and if they need any help accomplishing it. At the end of the period, they write on the back of the sticky note if they met their goal, and if not, they offer a brief explanation as to what happened, i.e. I was on my phone too much, the chart was harder than I expected so I didn't get all the way through, etc. They then put the notes on a table that is broken up into sections met my goal, almost met my goal, did not meet my goal. At the end of the day, she goes through every one of the sticky notes. She makes a note on their grade sheet about which category they fell in for the day, and this helps to inform her conversation for the next goal chat. A student who wrote that they didn't meet the goal because of their phone might be offered an option for gentle reminders to stay on task, or to leave their phone on the teacher's desk to minimize distractions. A student who exceeded their goal might have a chat that involves accurate self-assessment and explores whether the student should set a slightly more challenging goal for the day to push themselves. This gives students the opportunity to manage their own time and executive function instead of us doing it for them because eventually they will be adults that need to prioritize and regulate. What it doesn't do is just throw them in the water and expect them to swim, which would be the equivalent of setting the goals but never discussing them. She is helping them slowly build their own impulse control, self-discipline, self-management, and motivation. Scaffolding, another best practice for teachers. She is honestly an inspiration. I don't currently have the capacity for my own time prioritization to make that happen, but I have set a goal to incorporate this practice. So I'm working on my own time management skills to eventually get there. I would like to take a moment to refer back to the scenario I presented for the self-awareness section. The group activity about the employee being yelled at by the boss allowed us to work on growth in the areas of impulse control, stress management, and self-discipline. Even if the boss is completely in the wrong, rarely is it a good idea to respond by yelling back. We talked about how it is important to breathe to keep the heart rate lower so that our anger doesn't boil over to the point of no return. We each offered words, phrases, or sentences that we could say that would be respectful of the person in front of us while also maintaining our own self-respect by not allowing someone to yell at us. We looked at how shutting down would present itself in the situation. Is it a good idea to walk away while they are still talking? Can you just stare at them in silence until you have an opportunity to speak? Being successful in a capitalist society requires you to negotiate interactions with others 
in a way that will benefit you in the long run. So we also talked about what would net us the most long-term versus short-term gains. And I wholeheartedly acknowledged at one point that sometimes there are just bad jobs with bad bosses. Try to stick it out until you have something else lined up, but almost nothing in this world is worth sacrificing your mental health for extended periods of time. These learners are either already in the job market or will be soon, and these conversations are crucial to them being helpful, productive members of the workforce. Social awareness. Social awareness is simultaneously easy and difficult for teenagers. I don't work with many people below the age of 15, so I can't say for sure, but I suspect it is the same for children of almost any age. Social awareness is defined by Kasel as the ability to take the perspective of and empathize with others, including those from diverse backgrounds and cultures. The ability to understand social and ethical norms for behavior and to recognize family, school, and community resources and supports. In student-friendly terms, this means perspective-taking, empathy, appreciating diversity, and respect for others. The reason it is easy and hard for students? The needs of the self. In my experience, they have an almost heightened sense that others are different from them, and they work to navigate norms with precision, especially the social ones, in an effort to feel not so different. But they often feel that the differences are so great that it is impossible to truly understand someone else's perspective, or that anyone would understand theirs. The goal as a teenager is to build a community with a barrier for self-preservation. So the goal here for myself and my colleagues is twofold. One, get them to see how they have more similarities with their peers than others than they may realize. And two, appreciate the things that make them different without viewing them as a threat to their self-preservation. Every Thursday, we play a game called This or That. I discussed it in episode one, But in brief, I present two choices and we all vote. This week, one of the choice sets was sunrise or sunset. I call out each choice and they raise their hand for the preferred option. Most of the choice sets are low risk like this. And I always vote. This allows them to see me as a whole person with preferences. And it gives them a chance to see that they have a lot in common with their peers. And my advisory is fairly diverse across racial, age, and socioeconomic lines. But the differences are incredibly meaningful for the votes. Each side gets their chance to say why they picked what they did. I.e., I picked Sunset because I like the muted array of colors. Talk about perspective taking. You get to hear straight from the other person what makes them different and why. They begin to view their peers as whole people that may be different, but can be sympathized with because they are also similar. 
Two students may agree in the mountain versus beach debate, but find themselves on opposite sides of the Twitter versus Instagram showdown. <laughs> Just kidding. It wasn't a showdown. I was the only one who voted for Twitter. But the point is that if they have conflict with each other in the future for any reason, they are more likely to remain respectful and have the ability to see the other person's point of view. Let me take it back to the job scenario. How do we work through the social and ethical norms of the workplace? How do we put ourselves in the position of the boss? Can we practice assigning positive intent or just not taking things personally? Is it possible the boss has had a terrible day and this was the straw that broke the camel's back? Does that make the behavior okay? No, it doesn't. Does it make the behavior more relatable so that maybe we can empathize and have a rational conversation once the yelling is done? Possible. Is it still true that there are sometimes bad jobs with bad bosses? Sure, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we can't still view them as whole people who just aren't good for our mental health. Instead of putting them in one box labeled something like angry, hateful, or mean-spirited. Relationship skills. Although it is pretty straightforward, allow me to offer up the CASEL definition for relationship skills. The ability to establish and maintain healthy and rewarding relationships with diverse individuals and groups. The ability to communicate clearly, listen well, cooperate with others, resist inappropriate social pressure, negotiate conflict constructively, and seek and offer help when needed. The skills within this competency in student-friendly language can be thought of as communication, social engagement, relationship building, and teamwork. Let's face it, some of us just don't want to people very often, but human beings are social creatures by nature. And we operate in a world where relationships with others are nearly essential to a healthy, happy, fulfilling life. Does that mean you need to surround yourself with others all the time? Gosh, I hope not, because that sounds like torture. But it does mean that you should be able to get along well with others and to have a few people you can count on for support and for whom you offer support. The key is that the relationship needs to be a two-way street and that both parties should be benefiting from each other in the long run. And when it comes to community building in general, being able to associate with whole groups provides opportunities to be exposed to others that are different from you. And while group work is almost universally despised, especially in school, there are positives that come from it when it is done right. Advisory on our campus is one big relationship building exercise. The reason our principal wants us to have structure and incorporate activities 
is so that our students feel like they are part of a greater whole and not disparate parts of the academic machinery. Coming to our campus should be a chance to be seen, heard, and valued by adults and peers. If we spent every advisory period like a study hall with the kids doing what they want, likely scrolling on their phones, it would reinforce the chasm inherent to a self-paced school where students come and go at varying intervals to classes and the campus as a whole. Because there are so few opportunities in a self-paced environment for small group, much less whole group, activities and or assignments, we have to use the advisory period to its fullest potential so that students get opportunities to practice being a part of the collective and working with others. My neighbor next door loves to play games with her advisory and it is so much fun to experience when we're invited. Games are a great low risk way to get students to work cooperatively toward a common goal, as long as the game isn't Monopoly. She is fairly new to venture, but she fits so well with who we are. I have watched her advisory blossom this year and I so often think of them as a collective group. Another way she practiced teamwork is with our school marquee. We have one of the old fashioned ones that has to be opened up and the letters exchanged individually to spell out whatever the special message is. Each month or six weeks or so, she takes her advisory out there to change out the sign. This requires them to work together to get the old message off and the new message on in a relatively short amount of time because advisory is only 15 minutes long. She and I have classrooms on the front of the building, which faces the front lot and by extension the sign. So on the days where their sign work and my journal activity line up, I have watched them do it. Does it sometimes look like she's doing the majority of the work? Yeah, but they're teenagers, so it isn't wholly unexpected. But by the end, it is clear to see that they are working more like a functional team. And the key to good teamwork is communication. This teacher has it in spades. She models it for them all the time. Communication isn't just the key to changing a sign successfully. It is the key to being successful at almost anything you want to do in life. So let me drag you back one more time to the scenario I presented earlier. When you look at the discussion we had, it is easy to see that communication is one of the centerpieces, both verbal and nonverbal. Walking away while someone else is talking, that is a clear nonverbal cue that you have no desire to hear what they are saying. Escalating a fight by yelling back at someone when you could wait your turn to speak calmly. Potentially damaging a relationship permanently that could have been salvaged with level heads. And sometimes those work relationships need to be salvaged, whether we like it or not, in order to do our jobs effectively while we remain there. Or if we want a positive reference when we leave for greener pastures. I have also had personal conversations with my advisees and students where we discuss their interpersonal relationships with friends and significant others. One of the things I try to stress most often in that type of relationship building is respect. Respect for the other person and yourself. 
if they tell me that they fight all the time with another person, then I ask questions to get at the root of the argument. If it turns out that they are just toxic for each other because whatever issues they are bringing to the table just escalate the other person's issues, then maybe it is time to walk away, which is a sign of respect. If they have friends who treat them like a personal therapist and essentially trauma dump on them all the time, maybe it is time to step away from that friendship in a respectful way. We talk about setting healthy boundaries and that you are allowed to care about someone else's well-being without sacrificing your own. We look at ways we can recommend that person um, receive help from our on-site social workers who deserve a whole episode of their own in the future, by the way, because they are literally trained for it. And how to tell them that you care about them, but you need some space for your own mental health. In all of these situations, communication is essential. And genuine relationship building cannot happen without communication. Responsible decision-making. And now we arrive at the capstone using all of the skills above to begin making responsible decisions. Casel defines this as the ability to make constructive choices about personal behavior and social interactions based on ethical standards, safety concerns, and social norms. The realistic evaluation of consequences of various actions and a consideration of the well-being of oneself and others. Put in student-friendly terms, it is these six skills. Identifying problems, analyzing situations, solving problems, evaluating, reflecting, and ethical responsibility. This is the tough one. Teenagers' brains aren't fully developed. And even with all the right tools in the world, they are still prone to think short-term versus long-term. So we just do the best we can with what we have. But this is where our campus shines. Our students have a safe place to fail at making responsible decisions. They get an opportunity to pick themselves back up and try again. We get the chance to have a conversation about why their choice wasn't the best, what the potential consequences could be if they tried that out in the adult world, and what they could do differently next time. They aren't judged, and almost nothing is a one-and-done deal. I said previously that they sometimes have to spend a few weeks on our disciplinary campus, but we almost always let them back so they can try again to do better. To the best of my knowledge, and this is a stat I would love to get from my assistant principal, we have very few repeat offenders meaning students who go to our DAEP and return to us multiple times. If they do, it's usually for something like drugs. And I've never seen someone who left for anything aggressive come back and repeat the behavior. I am not a psychologist, but my limited understanding of the human experience leads me to think it's because we believe in them enough 
to help them start believing in themselves. We work tirelessly to help them build the tools in their toolbox. And we offer as many second chances as we possibly can because we see every single student as having the potential to be successful, even if they have not been so great at it in the past. And I truly believe that when we let them come straight back to us from the DAEP without needing to reapply or anything, they see that as adults who care about them and believe in them. And suffice to say, we have a lot of conversations about making good choices in our advisories, our classrooms, and even during our graduations. Wrap up and looking ahead. I really am trying to keep these from being too long, so I will wrap it up here. I want to say thank you if you made it to the end of the episode. As I read through what I had, it started to sound redundant in my head, but I realized there's a reason why. These are what we in the education field call spiraling skills. Basically, it all starts with a foundation, and the skills at each level up are just more complex versions of the skills that came before. I also noticed that it is built heavily on Maslow before Bloom. If you aren't sure what that means, I highly encourage you to reach out and ask me or another trusted teacher in your life. And if that isn't an option, a quick web search should tell you all you need. But at its core, it means fulfilling our most basic, especially physical needs, like emotional regulation, is essential before learning complex skills can occur like analyzing situations. I would like to close out this discussion on SEL with a quote that embodies what we do here and why helping students grow in their social and emotional capacities is so important. The student I mentioned earlier, who was being recognized as our student of the month in front of the board, graduated last week and asked her advisor to say these words. This school has helped me become more confident and honest with myself and others. I've never been to a school where all of the staff members truly care about the students and wish for all of us to succeed. I have been held in the arms of teachers as I cried, and I have been talked down from many ledges. I will be forever grateful. Looking ahead, I'm planning some episodes that show what the end of the year is like for us and how we handle summer school. Additionally, I really want to put together the episode that highlights our social workers. They are amazing people who do amazing work for our students, and our campus just wouldn't be the same without them. I hope everyone had a great Teacher Appreciation Week. This has been Something Ventured, Something Gained, Tales from an AEP, written, hosted, and edited by Catherine. Please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes, and please like and or comment to let us know what you think.